Last week, uh, I was asked to um, lead as we observe the Lord's Supper. And before that, John had asked me to cover for him this morning because he had a wedding this week out of town. And so uh, after that, uh, I don't know, just spending some time contemplating in prayer, I thought, thought maybe because this is something that we, we do every week, we observe the Lord's Supper every week here, maybe we ought to slow down and take a, a slower look at it. And so the, the sermon I was preparing for is out, and this one is in. And that's what we're going to do this morning, okay? We're going we're gonna to study uh, the Lord's Supper. Um, we're going to take a glance at about the 10,000-foot level of the Lord's Supper because we don't have the six hours that I need to really, uh, and I'm being serious, uh, if it were up to me. So we had Dr. Michael Shepard here, right? And yesterday and the night before, we had the, the round tables set up in here. And when I showed up Friday night uh, and I saw the tables, I thought, man, that, perfect. We, if only we could just leave it that way for Sunday morning because uh, we're going to be studying the Lord's Supper, which was a supper. Uh, and it was a, a full festive, celebrative, joyful meal uh, celebrated around the table. Well, we're not doing that because I figured after about an hour and a half or so of going through it, I might would not have anybody left around the table. <laughs> so maybe one day we'll get to that. I know there are a lot of questions, and that's really what led me to think uh, that we, we should slow down and take a, a detailed look at the Lord's Supper. A lot of questions, a lot of confusion, a lot of misunderstanding. Uh, how, is, uh, how is the, the bread and the cup representative of Christ's body, or is it representative? Is it more than representative? Is it literally the blood and the body of Jesus? Uh, is it symbolic? Is it somewhere in between literal and symbolic? Uh, why do we call it communion? Who's allowed to administer it? Who's allowed to take it? Um, I mean, the, the questions throughout the ages of the church uh, are, are, are many. We're given the very solemn warning by the Apostle Paul in, in, in 1 Corinthians 11 that uh, we're not to partake of it in an unworthy manner because if we do that, then we're what? He says we're guilty of the body and the blood of Jesus. And so what, what does that mean? Am I worthy to take the communion today? Uh, that's the ultimate question for each one of us. Can I abstain from taking the communion today and, and, and avoid Paul's uh, uh, consequences and, and maybe just go back to the way I was before I came in and, you know, and come back next week and everything's good? Can I, can I just abstain? Do I have to be a believer? Uh, do I have to be baptized? Baptized how? Baptized by whom? You know, the list goes on. Do I need to be a member of the church? Does it really matter? What does it have to do with me today in the year 2023? And so during our, our short time, it won't, it won't be six hours, <clears throat> uh, but during my, our short time here this morning, my hope and prayer is despite my limitations and my own shortcomings, that the Holy Spirit, just as John prayed, would, would move you, that he would move us into a closer relationship with him as we better understand the Lord's Supper and, and, and what is it. And an amazing thing will happen, not just on, on this study, but on any Bible study. When he moves you closer, uh, when you understand him better, he moves you closer into a relationship with him. And you know what happens when that happens? revival happens. And you know what happens when revival happens? The gospel gets preached. And you know what happens when that happens? Lost people get saved. And that is my prayer, that lost people will get saved. And that's not a pipe dream. We have documentation in the book of Acts that that's exactly what happened when, when God did his thing and we let him. Okay, so let's get started. Uh, for starters, 
I already mentioned we don't have anywhere near enough time to unpack everything, so it's going to kind of be a quick overview. Uh, I, the, the wealth of information that's out there in the scriptures alone and outside of the scriptures in the form of uh, theologians and books and uh, apostolic writers and church history and all of that, it's, it's, it's incredible. One book, one book alone, just as an example, one book that I read as, as I was preparing for this this week, one chapter and that one book had over 150 outside references to be able to write that chapter. That author cited more than 150 other writings to write the one chapter in that book. It's, it's incredible. One book that I, another book that I read and I highly recommend to you if you enjoy reading on this topic, written by a fellow named John Mark Hicks. I don't know anything about him other than he wrote this book called Come to the Table. I highly recommend that. If, in fact, I used uh, his book as some of my source material for what I'm going to share with you this morning. Ultimately, uh, he presents the case that throughout all the Bible, all of the sacrificial meals were observed at a table. And they were celebratory. They were festive. They were intimate. They were familial, family, uh, friends and family. They were communal. In other words, the whole community was involved, the community of, of people <clears throat> around that. And uh, all, all of the, the take, taking from the scriptures how the Lord's Supper uh, is done and in the early church how it was done and how we do it, completely foreign how we do it today compared to then. And so I'm not going to uh, turn over the apple cart, so to speak, and, and suggest that we make radical changes. I'm just going to share with you what is the Lord's Supper, okay? And uh, what we do from here is, well, we'll just have to wait and see. But in, in his book, again, uh, Hicks, he demonstrates how, how the, the table and the altar are different. And, and the table where we gather for these communal festive meals could only happen after the altar. And so the sacrifice at the altar brings reconciliation. It brings uh, redemption. It brings forgiveness. It, it, it causes those under it to be declared holy. And when that happens, the table can happen. <clears throat> because what happens at the table in the Bible is it's the people but it's also God is present at the table. He's present there. And so if, if you're reading, if you started the year off in a, a, with a Bible reading plan, if you're doing any type of read through the Bible in the year type of thing, if you started that, I want to encourage you to do something maybe different that you hadn't done before. And when you read through the Bible and you come across any story that references a sacrifice or a festival or a meal, make a note of that. It is unbelievable how consistent it is all the way back from the garden to the end and in the future uh, when, when we're with the Lord physically in person, face to face. So uh, Hicks, again, he demonstrates at the altar, you know, it's, it's for us, the altar is the cross. It's a somber thing. You know, something had to die, right? Something had to spill its blood in order to make the table a possibility. And, and, and the two are separate, even though they are related. So the blood sacrifice brings the worshiper into a re right relationship with God, where the worshiper and God could then fellowship. And that's, that's the idea behind the Lord's table. It's no different. And even though we do this here, we're no different, by the way. If you could go across denominations, and we're all pretty much are the same as far as how we observe it, but what we put as far as the meaning of those elements is, is different from one to the other. We're not going to get into all that today. We really do need about six hours just for that. Uh, but I would say this before we continue on. Probably the closest thing that we do here at Alpine that resembles the, the biblical New Testament Lord's Supper is not what we do on Sunday morning. It's not wrong what we do on Sunday morning, but the closest thing to the New Testament Lord's Supper that we do here isn't what we do this morning on Sundays. It's what we do when we meet at what we call life groups. So when we, when we meet in the home of various church members and we gather over a meal and we fellowship and we study 
and we learn and we grow and we worship as a result of all that. We spend time in prayer. That's probably, even though it's not the Lord's Supper, it's the closest thing we do that resembles the New Testament version of the Lord's Supper. And so it shouldn't be totally foreign to us, the stuff that I'm going to share with you this morning, unless you have no clue what a home Bible study is. But I think everybody might have an idea. So before we continue, I'm going to take you through a very brief history of the Lord's Supper. Will you join me as we pray and ask the Lord to bless our time? Father, what an awesome privilege, as John prayed, it is to gather this morning to open your word, to study from it, to be taught by your Holy Spirit. Our desire, Lord, is that, uh, that we would learn and then have the wisdom to put into practice what we learn, whatever it is your Holy Spirit teaches us. We thank you for the privilege to gather, not just for the study of your Holy Word, but for the, the, the fellowship that comes from gathering, the, the, the worship through song, the worship through giving, and all of the other parts of our, our service, Lord, we pray that they would all uh, be accepted by you as an acceptable sacrifice. We thank you for our time, and for those who are out for various reasons, whether it's travel or work or sick, we pray you bless them, Father, and that you return them to us safe. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we don't have a whole lot in the New Testament about the Lord's Supper. We have the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We have John who doesn't, he records the Last Supper, but doesn't record Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper there. Uh, There are inferences in other parts of John about where he feeds the 5,000. Some say that that was a, a Passover, Lord's Supper type of deal. And then, of course, we have the apostle born out of due time, uh, the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians writing to them, and, and in his case, which we're going to look at at the end, his, his, his case closely resembles the one in Luke uh, as far as how Paul records the Lord Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper. And when we get to, uh, when we get to Paul's version in 1 Corinthians at the end, uh, we'll see Paul was with the Corinthian church was addressing a specific set of problems that they were, they were going through. He was addressing those. How they observed the Lord's Supper was one of those problems, but they were all kind of related. Uh, So other than that, we we, we have to go to early church writings uh, after the uh, first century. And there's not a whole lot there, but there are some things there. But basically, the church, just as a nutshell, the church followed the New Testament version that Jesus instituted. Uh, It was a festive meal uh, until around the early fourth century. Uh, and what happened <clears throat> at that time was the Roman Emperor Constantine was uh, ruler of the planet, I guess you could say. He legalized Christianity. Uh, there's this uh, phrase, they call this the Constantine shift, where Christianity now became legal. He was Christian. Uh, he basically, for all practical purposes, declared everybody in the world was Christian at that point. Uh, before that, obviously, the Christians were persecuted. But after that, he legalized it. And things changed. Things shifted. Uh, churches, church buildings began to be built. The church membership transitioned from meeting in homes under the radar to meeting in ornate churches, church buildings, uh, chapels, steeples, sanctuaries, and things like that. And naturally, what happened when you transition from the house to here to a church sanctuary, things become more... Uh, I don't know, reserved, um, formal, uh, religious, solemn, uh, you know, a lot more formal than, than being around the table at the house. And, and that's basically what happened. And so what happened after that, and since then, this goes all the way back to then, since then, the Lord's Supper has devolved from a festive meal to the two elements that are part of the meal, the, the cup and the bread. And we all do it that way, have been, with very few exceptions, for about the last 1,800 years. Now, in that 1,800 years, no shortage of debate, no shortage of controversy, no shortage of arguing and division and conflict and all these various things that uh, are typical amongst uh, churches, unfortunately. Um, So what I want to take you to, though, is without getting into those debates and arguments and trying to present 
my understanding of, of that, what I would like you to do is kind of back up and realize and remember that the focus as we take the Lord's Supper is not to be you. It's not to be me. It's not to be us. And it's not even to be the elements. The cup and the wine that Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood that was spilled for you. It's not even the main focus of the Lord's Supper. Do you know what is? It's the Lord. The Lord is the focus. God is the focus. The fact that he is present with us at the table. At Christmas, we say one of his names is what? Emmanuel. God with us. He's God with us. He is present with us. So the sacrifice at the altar on the cross is a past historical event. We are to remember that. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. But the meal, when it's a, a, a festive, joyous, celebratory meal, it moves us from the altar, from the cross, to a intimate conversation with God. God is present, and God is with us. And that ought to lead us into worship. That ought to cause us a, a reason to celebrate. Can you imagine? I mean, there's no, no, no reason or no such thing that a meal with God present at the table should be like a funeral. It's not, it's not that way. It shouldn't be that way. Uh, imagine the marriage supper of the Lamb going to happen later, right, in the future. Can you imagine Jesus, the bridegroom, finally? Uh, he's, he, he's got his bride. Us, the church, is there around the table. And, and we don't look at each other, and we don't talk to each other, and we kind of do like we do on Sunday mornings with, you know, it's, it's all about that's completely foreign to how it's really going to be. So, uh, and and it works that way in heaven, by the way. You know, the Lord's Supper is, uh, the reality of it is we're supping with the Lord. He's present with us. Uh, And and that's what heaven is about. You know, heaven, heaven isn't heaven because of the golden streets. And it's not heaven because of the angels. And it's not heaven because of the mansions and all the other things that are in heaven. That, that, are, that are there. Heaven is heaven because God's there. The Lord's Supper is the Lord's Supper because God is there with us. It's been that way uh, from the beginning. So it's a celebration of the sacrifice that has brought us reconciliation and redemption. That's what the Lord's Supper is all about. When we get caught up in debates over the elements, we lose sight of that fact. It's about the Lord. He is present with us Uh, He is communing with us. That word communion, by the way, is interesting. It's translated from a Greek word. might sound familiar to some of you. The Greek word for communion is koinonia. The Greek word koinonia is a word that often translates in our Bibles as fellowship. So when we take communion, we're fellowshipping with each other and the Lord. That's what it is. It's fellowship. And God seeks fellowship with us and has done so since day one. That's why he created us. He created us for fellowship. Not because he needed anything. He didn't need fellowship. He didn't need us to fellowship with him. He had a perfect, intimate, eternal fellowship amongst the Trinity. And yet he creates us for fellowship because he loved us before the foundation of the world. And so as we observe the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, it's fellowship with God Even though we're not having a meal today, it's fellowship with God over a covenantal meal. God is a covenant God. I'm going to talk about that very briefly in a minute. But as an ordinance, the supper that was uh, instituted by the Lord himself is to be practiced corporately. That means together in the churches forever until we're at the marriage supper of the Lamb with Jesus face to face. You know what that means? To do it corporately, again, means we do it here together as a family. You know what that means? That's another reason why we can't get church from home. You can't get church on the TV by watching your favorite TV evangelist. When you do that, you can't do this. You can't do it. Can you... The, Probably as a nation, the closest thing we have to 
um, the Lord's Supper and Passover would be Thanksgiving. Can you imagine sending the whole family over to gather wherever it is that your family gathers, but you stay home on the sofa and watch TV? You're, you're going to miss out on the fellowship. Works the same way here. You can't get the fellowship that you get around the table with a meal that you do from home on the sofa watching TV. It makes no sense. And if we had a couple hours, I really would love to spend time, I guess we'll do it another day, uh, on the concept of biblical covenants and covenantal meals. Uh, God is a covenantal God. Covenant indicates there's some kind of relationship between the two parties. The two parties have committed to each other. Uh, I'm going to do my part. You're going to do your part. In the Old Testament uh, and, and in, the, in the ancient Near East, the, the way that uh, covenants were established was that there was this phrase that, uh, that we've talked about in Sunday school before recently, last year, uh, this phrase called cut a covenant. They would cut a covenant. Well, what does that mean? It means that they would literally take a bull, cut it in half. It was a very bloody event. A coven covenant cutting was bloody because they were cutting an animal. The animal would be sacrificed. They would lay the two halves of the animal on the ground, and the parties that are entering this covenant with each other would walk through the animal. And, and, and part of it, the, what, uh, the, 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 what they were saying as they did that is, I'm entering into this covenant with you, and if I break my part, may what happened to that animal happen to me. But... The cutting of the covenant was only half of the covenant. It wasn't ratified yet. That was their commitment to each other. After they did that, you know what they did? After the altar, after the sacrifice, after they cut the covenant, they would eat the sacrifice. They would prepare it, they would cook it, and they would eat it in a festive, celebratory, familial, familial Thanksgiving type of meal. But the problem was, if you imagine, um, if, if, if they're cutting a covenant, they couldn't just, it wouldn't just be the two people involved. They couldn't. Because the, the, the sacrifice had to be eaten that day. And there ain't, nobody's going to be able to eat 800 pounds of meat in a day. So you know what that led to? It led to a communal meal. The community was brought in. And so the, the covenant meal, the feast, was shared with the community. And, and then, when that happened, that covenant was ratified. It was a done deal. That's it in a nutshell. Those feasts, the, those covenantal feasts were feasts. They always followed a pattern. There was the sacrifice that brought reconciliation, redemption, cleansing in the, in the sense of the covenant. It indicated, I'm entering this covenant with you, and if I break and violate that covenant, may... What happened to that animal happened to me, but then there was the meal that came after the altar, after the sacrifice, after the blood, and they would gather and, and celebrate and, and worship. And what better way to celebrate than over a festive meal? So let's look quickly at a couple of scripture passages. Exodus 12, I want to start with you there. And the reason I want to start with you there is because the Lord's New Testament Passover, um, uh, Lord's New Testament Lord's Supper is uh, anticipated in the Old Testament at, under the Passover. And so the Old Testament Passover anticipated the New Testament Lord's Supper. And so as the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper at that last meal, at his last supper, he did that in the context of the Passover. He was observing the Passover meal with his apostles. So we have to understand Passover, but in order to do that, we have to understand, or the Lord's Supper, we have to understand uh, Passover first. And we have to see both of them in all the festival meals in scriptures in light of God's overall redemption plan for mankind. And the Passover was an annual reliving. It wasn't just memory. It wasn't just uh, like a history book reading, uh, remembering the past. The Passover meal was interactive. It was done in stages. The various elements of the meal stood for different things in the redemption story where God saved Israel out of the land of Egypt. And it was, it was celebratory. They sang songs. 
Uh, they actually played games where they played a hide-and-seek type of game with the kids. The kids were involved. And ultimately, though, the Passover foreshadowed, foreshadowed the coming Messiah. That's what it was about. The Passover was a picture pointing to the people that there's a Messiah coming one day. Of course, we know now that Messiah is Jesus who fulfilled it. So the Passover was a meal. It wasn't just the cup and the wine. It was a full meal. And in Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 21, we have it there on the screen. Thanks for your help with that, Stephen. I want to read that to you. So Moses calls called for all the elders of Israel, and he said to them, go and take for yourselves lambs according to your family, slay the Passover lamb. You will take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood which is in the basin, apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and the two doorposts, and none of you shall go outside. This is while they're in Egypt, right? For the Lord will pass through and smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door, and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children for how long? Forever. When you enter the land which the Lord will give you, verse 25 here is a looking forward. Okay, It's not just looking back, it's looking forward. When you enter the land which the Lord will give you as he has promised... You shall observe this right. And when your children say to you, what does this right mean to you? You shall say, it's the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians, but spared our homes, and the people bowed low, and they worshipped. So the Passover was Old Testament Israel's version of do this in remembrance of me. And it was also, do this looking forward to what's coming in the future when you inherit the promised land. It was not a somber, mournful observance. It was festive. Again, it was a celebration. It was a reason to rejoice. And it was for all generations, forever. Passover was such an important part of their lives. Right near there where we just read, you see that God tells Moses that from now on, you have a new calendar. And the Exodus, the, the, the Passover, uh, that month is now the first month in your calendar. That's why their calendar is different. Just in case you were curious. That one's free. I'm not charging you for that one. In the same way, though, as the Passover, the Lord's Supper is to be a central component in the life of the church under the new covenant. Both the Passover and the Lord's Supper celebrate, they remember, Delivery, deliverance, redemption from sin. They celebrate reconciliation to God. They were delivered from Egypt. We were delivered from sin. Both celebrate salvation. Both relive what God has done, is doing, and will do in the future in Christ, through Christ, and because of Christ. All right? So that, that was the Passover. That was the, the initial Passover. Then you fast forward three months later. Okay, Israel is delivered out of Egypt. They're en route to the promised land. They make some short pit stops along the way because it's a long way. And, and by the way, it's uh, by conservative estimates, about a million people, uh, maybe more than a million people. Just to put that in perspective, our state has about four million people in it. This was about a million people out in the desert on their way to they don't know where. God's leading them with the pillar of fire and the cloud. And they're on their way to the promised land. Three months later, in Exodus 24, check this out. I wish we could just camp out in this passage for the whole time, but we can't. Exodus 24, starting in verse uh, 1. So they've been delivered. They are en route to the promised land. This is 90 days later. They come up to Mount Sinai. God leads them to Mount Sinai where God can come down, he can condescend, and he can meet with them for the purpose 
of establishing a covenant with them. That's what we call, what's, what we're going to uh, read here in a second, is where he establishes the Mosaic Covenant or the Old Covenant. Because Jesus said in the New Supper, in the uh, Lord's Supper, that he's the, establishing the New Covenant in his blood. So in Exodus 24 is the Old Covenant. And uh, he gives them the law, the Ten Commandments. We all know that story, right? Because we've seen the movie. So Moses goes up, he gets the Ten Commandments. Uh, he comes down, the people are worshiping a, a golden calf. Moses smashes the Ten Commandments. He goes back up and gets ten more. It's the same ten, and he comes back, and then, you know, the rest is history. There's really a whole lot more to it than that. And this passage is one that I have read many, many, many times, and I have not seen what I'm about to show you. So I don't know if you've seen it, but I, it's just, it, it blows me away every time I look at it. I, I had to read it again this morning. I was up early too. And uh, I, I looked at this particular passage. It says in chapter 21, God established the covenant. He said to Moses, this is God. He says, come up to the Lord. You, Aaron, his two sons, I can't pronounce their names, and the 70 elders. Okay, if you read the story, Moses was overwhelmed. He's got over a million people. He's the one guy, the one leader. He's in charge of it all. He's in charge of their, their lawsuits, their, their debates. The, he, he's, his tent's too close to my tent type stuff. He's their spiritual leader. He's their pastor. He's all of that. He's one guy, and he's wearing himself out. And his father-in-law comes and says, you're wearing yourself out. Get some help. So Moses appoints elders. And these elders, there's 70 of them. God says, take Aaron, his two sons, those 70 elders. You will represent the people of Israel who are camped out at the foot of the mountain. And Moses alone, in verse 2, however, shall come near to the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people come up with them. In verse 3, then Moses came and he recounted to all the people all the words of the Lord, all the ordinances. All the people answered with one voice and said, we'll do it. They said, yes. They said, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we'll do. So Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. That's the previous four chapters to this. It's called the book of the covenant. And he writes them all down. So Moses arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent the young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. There's the altar part of the covenant. The bulls are slaughtered. The first part of the covenant is established. God says in the previous four chapters, this is what I want you to do. The people uh, are informed by Moses. This is what God wants you to do. The people say, we'll do it. Now let's cut the covenant. So they cut the covenant. So verse 5, verse 6, Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, the previous four chapters, and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, what? All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. So they had a good attitude. Moses, in verse 8, takes the blood. How much blood would it take to sprinkle on over a million people? I don't know, but it was a lot, I'm sure. Sprinkles it on the people and says, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then, here's where it starts to blow my mind. Verse 9. Moses, he goes up with Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, the 70 elders of Israel. And verse 10 says what? They saw God. They saw the God of Israel. And under his feet, there appeared a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. But it gets better. Verse 11. God did not stretch out his hand against those men, the nobles, the sons of Israel. And they saw God and they what? They ate and they drank. So they saw God. They saw some form of God. There's uh, lots of debate over what they saw, but they saw God. Just like Moses saw some form of God. Just like John at the, in the book of Revelation and, and Isaiah saw the throne. And so there are exceptions to ain't no man can see God and live. 
Here's an exception. There's an exception that I never noticed before. And so it says, even though they're supposed to die, verse 11 says, God didn't stretch out his hand against them and kill them like they're supposed to. Why? Because he was cutting the covenant. See, the, the altar that happened before this meal made that fellowship possible. The, the cutting of the covenant the spilling of the blood, the sprinkling of the blood, the committal saying, yes, we will do this, made the fellowship meal with God possible. And then you go from there to the New Testament. But before we go there, just imagine with me for one quick moment. If you read the story after verse 11... You see where Moses doesn't just go up, get the Ten Commandments, come down, and then go back up and get ten more after the first ten were broken, shattered. He goes up and down a bunch. And after this meal, they go back down to the people. God calls Moses back up. Moses is gone for 40 days. And guess what they do? After they have this meal, after they cut this covenant, after Egypt, after the Red Sea, after the cloud and the pillar of fire and all this other stuff, they cut the covenant with God. They say, yes, we're going to do it. They, 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 they eat a meal in God's presence. They see God. And right after this, Moses goes up alone. The people convince Aaron to do what? They give him the gold, make us a golden calf. We don't know what's happened to this Moses, but you need to make us a calf. And then when he does that, they make the calf, they fall down and they bow down and they worship the golden calf and they declare to the calf, you have delivered us from Egypt. How insane is that? But it's, it's pretty insane. But I want, to, I want to tell you something. That's not as insane as we are. <laughs> we do the same thing. Because as you're about to see from Luke, we, 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 don't, we don't have some obscure, blurry, at-a-distance vision of God's feet in a, in a, uh, a, a, a sapphire street or whatever it was they saw, ground. I don't, we don't get some obscure vision. We have God, the living God, through His Holy Spirit in us, and yet we will take the Lord's Supper and go out of here and worship the same idols that we worshiped before we came in. And how insane is that? I think if the tables would turn and those Israelites could read about us doing that, they would look and say, how insane are those people? And by God's amazing grace, we are not immediately struck down like those people were when they fell down and worshiped that golden calf. Mm. All right, Luke 22. <clears throat> Let's turn there. Verse 14. It's the night before Jesus is arrested, crucified, When the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to him, I have earnestly decided to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He's, he's fellowshipping with them over the Passover celebration. For I say to you, I shall never eat it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. We could have spent all morning on that one verse. We really could. Verse 17. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I'll not drink of the fruit of the vine from now until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. This new covenant 
that Jesus is establishing was ratified with a meal, just like before. The old covenant was celebrated and ratified with a meal. The new covenant is celebrated and ratified with a meal. All of the sacrificial offerings were celebrated and ratified with a meal. The offerer would eat the sacrifice after the spilling of the blood. And so when Jesus made this declaration that his body was the bread and the blood, uh, the, the cup was the, the, the blood of the covenant, he was invoking that Old Testament, Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, declaring it to be fulfilled in him. He didn't cancel it. He didn't delete it. He didn't do away with it. He fulfilled it. He was the fulfillment. And at the same time he fulfilled the old covenant, he inaugurated the new covenant. So no longer are we under that law, that law that they obviously failed to keep. I mean, on day one, they were worshiping the golden calf. They didn't keep it. We're not under that law. That law, the Passover, was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so we are delivered, we are redeemed, and we are worthy to partake of the Lord's Supper, not because we didn't do any bad sins this week, not because we gave or ministered or any, any of that. That doesn't make us worthy. Jesus makes us worthy. We're delivered, we're redeemed, and we're made worthy by faith in what Jesus did on our behalf. Jesus is our Passover. Jesus fulfilled the old covenant with God on our behalf because we never could. They couldn't, but guess what? You might as well put your name in there too because we can't either. <laughs> he fulfilled it. We broke it. He fulfilled it. And then he died as our substitute on the cross to satisfy God's righteous requirements of perfection and holiness. Jesus did that, but he didn't stay dead, right? He rose on the third day, and he offers eternal life to anyone who would put their trust in his sacrifice by faith on their behalf. Anyone who will repent and believe in him were promised salvation, forgiveness, redemption, Worthiness to partake of the Lord's Supper, to fellowship and commune with God. I, I, I wish I had the words to paint what an awesome picture that should paint in, in our minds. But as if the forgiveness and the salvation and the eternal life is not enough, as if that's not enough, we will e enjoy eternal fellowship with Him. And that eternal celebration that eternity is inaugurated guess with what i've already said it a couple of times the marriage supper a marriage feast a celebration <laughs> and we're not going to be somberly sitting around wondering about am i worthy enough to be sitting around this table we're going to be too focused on the lord who is the bridegroom as we celebrate and as he gives us a cup by the way the, the, uh, the Old Testament Passover, I mentioned this when we did the Lord's Supper last week. There were four cups uh, that they drank from during Passover. And they drank them at different times throughout the meal. The first cup, cup one, was the cup of sanctification. That cup was done at the beginning of Passover. It was signified and represented the holiness and the cleansing that we need from the Lord. The second cup was the cup of plagues. It was a remembrance, a reminder of how the Lord delivered them in Egypt from the plagues, but also how he is our healer. He is our, uh, our, our, our deliverer from sin and from sickness. The third cup is the cup of praise. I'm sorry, uh, the cup of redemption. The fourth cup is the cup of praise. The cup of redemption is a reminder of the redemption made available to us through our living Savior. It's a cup of celebration. We're redeemed. Praise the Lord. We're saved. We're reconciled to God. This is the cup Jesus was holding in verse 20 when he said, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. That was the blood, the, the cup of redemption. And so it was cause for celebration. We are redeemed. It's the one we take during communion. The fourth cup, Jesus didn't take it that night. That's the cup of praise. He's going to take that cup at the marriage supper of the, the Lamb. 
Interesting thing about that fourth cup, the cup of praise. In a Jewish wedding, the groom extends the fourth cup to his bride. And the bride drinks from it. It's a a non-bloody way of cutting a covenant, the marriage covenant. The groom gives the bride the fourth cup, the cup of praise. The bride takes it. She drinks from it, signifying that she's ratifying this covenant of marriage. When we get to the table, the marriage feast, Jesus, the bridegroom, is going to give you a cup. (laughs) And when we drink at that time, the marriage will have been consummated, sealed. And there's going to be the kickoff to an eternal celebration. So, to our original question earlier, what does this all mean? And what does this have to do with me today? The apostle Paul points us to the Old Testament sacrificial system as the key to understanding the Lord's Supper. So in the same way that the Old Testament sacrifices of Israel were a cutting of a covenant, and then a celebratory meal, fellowship meal in God's presence, the Lord's Supper is the same. It's a Thanksgiving meal. Some call it the Eucharist. You've heard that word before. You know what that word Eucharist means? It means Thanksgiving. By the way, the word communion, I mentioned this earlier, literally comes from a Greek word that literally means fellowship. So the Lord's Supper is a meal that involves the entire community celebrating the presence of God in our midst, fellowshipping with Him and with each other, made possible by the altar, made possible by the cross, by His sacrifice. We see this, as I mentioned earlier, acted out in the church and and, and towards the front of Acts, and Acts starting around chapter 2. Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection on our behalf is the gospel. That's why you've heard pastors say this is us acting out the gospel. That's why. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are the earliest gospel because they were doing this before there was a New Testament written. So, with that, just for the sake of time, Let's transition to the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I didn't give you this one, uh, Stephen, just because we uh, pretty much go here on a weekly basis. So it's not on the screen, but if you want to turn there, you can. Um, If you want to come up, John. I mentioned this earlier. when, When Paul records the Lord instituting the Lord's Supper. Paul was interesting in a a whole lot of ways. One of them was he received, he wasn't there. Paul wasn't one of the 12, right? He was one of the prosecutors killing Christians. The Lord saves him after the fact, after after the Lord was gone, and appears to Paul direct, gives Paul his gospel direct. God, the Lord Jesus, appears to Paul in person. And he receives it. That's why he says in chapter 11, verse 23, Paul writes, I received from the Lord. He got a a direct visitation. I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death 
until he comes. A little bit later, Paul gives that warning. Examine yourself. Because if you eat or drink in an unworthy manner, you're guilty of the blood and the body of Jesus. Are you guilty of that today? I'm going to go out on a limb and say, probably not. Paul, Paul was dealing with a specific issue in that church. See, this, this Lord's Supper was, again, it was a feast. It was a celebratory meal where they would fellowship, they would commune. It was for the community, and the Lord was present. But what happened in Corinth was they turned it to something ugly. They turned it to something idolatrous. They turned it to something that it's not supposed to be, but called it their love feast anyway. And what happened is the ones who were on the in crowd would come early. They would pig out. They would get drunk, and there'd be no food left. And then the, the needy ones would come in, and they missed out on the fellowship. They missed out on the food, and they missed out on the whole thing. And Paul says, because you're doing that, many of you are sick, and some of you have died. And don't you ever take the Lord's Supper, which is about the Lord, and make it about yourself or something else other than the Lord. Because if you do that, then yes, you're guilty, and you should not participate until you get that cleared up with the judge. So I would encourage you, if you're able to stand, please stand. I want to pray for us. And while John plays, after uh, you've done your business with the Lord, come and take of the, the cup and the bread. Take it back to your seat. If you're a visitor or a guest here, uh, our church uh, is, has the position that if you are a baptized believer in the faith, you don't have to be a member here to participate. You're welcome to participate. If you're not a believer... The invitation is that you don't participate. Instead, come and speak with one of us so we can sit with you and reason with you through the word and show you how you can know that you can know for sure that you've been redeemed and worthy through the blood, made worthy by the Lord's work. So take it back to your seat. And then I'll come back and we'll partake of them together. Okay? So let's pray. Father, we're so grateful. Even though our words are limited, our knowledge is limited, our ability is limited, as best we know how and as humbly as we know how, we want to say, Lord, that we're grateful. Our minds, our hearts, our actions don't always reflect that. But we come to you this morning to say thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy, for your patience. Thank you for the way that you, you have loved us from even the, the, before the foundation of the world. And in spite of us, you love us. And we know that that's true, not because there's anything worthy in us, but because of Jesus. We know that's true because you gave us Jesus. You gave us the cross to reconcile us, to fellowship with us. And so we're grateful, Father. We thank you for the cup. We thank you for the bread. We thank you that you're our God in Jesus' name.